Welcome back to America's Talking. I'm Austin Berg. Today, I'm so pleased to be joined by Bill Courtney. Bill's the CEO of Classic American Hardwoods, based in Memphis, Tennessee. He's the subject of the 2011 documentary Undefeated, which won the Oscar for Best Documentary Film. And he's the host of the new podcast, An Army of Normal Folks. That's in conjunction with iHeartRadio and Ironlight Labs. Labs is a sister nonprofit of the agency where I serve as co-founder, Ironlight. And we are so pleased to be working with Bill. And I was so pleased to meet him in person for the first time today. I'm Thanks so for joining us, Bill. Too. Yeah. Except for the freaking heat. You know, <laughs> sorry about that. I saw you sweating. We're used to that. <laughs> okay, it's yeah. okay. No worries. <laughs> What's the most important lesson you learned selling cars? The most important lesson I learned selling cars? Well, you asked. There's a question I've not gotten, but it's a good one. So I'm from Memphis. Um, Kimmons Wilson is a name you probably don't know. He and his wife, Dorothy, took their seven kids uh, on a trip from Memphis one day. And and it took them a week to get from here to Florida and back. And every place they stayed, they didn't know if they'd have air conditioner or color TV or whatever. And he thought that was ridiculous. So he said, you know what? We need to create... Back in those days, there was either roadside motels like the Bates Motel or there were really, really, really high-end hotels, right? There was nothing for the common average Ford driver. So he said, you know what? We're going to start a thing, and it's going to be the same no matter where it is, and we'll call it the Holiday Inn. And that guy founded the Holiday Inn, which is now the precursor to Marriott, Hilton, mm-hmm. all of them, mm-hmm. where all of us stay all the time. Um was started right here in Memphis by Kimmons Wilson. And before he died, I sold him a car and um, for his business. I, I sold fleets and um, he invited me to lunch and I went and he told me to meet him at Wilson Air. Well, I didn't even know what that was. Turns out it was an FBO for his planes. So his Learjet is literally sitting outside the door of where I'm joining him for lunch and uh, I asked him, you know, Mr. Wilson, you came from nothing. You had seven kids and were a construction guy. Um, if, if Give me one piece of advice. He says, all right, you want everything? I said, yeah. He said, just work half a day. And I said, I'm in. You got a jet. You're a billionaire. I'm in. He said, Bill, just work half a day. Doesn't matter if you work the first 12 hours or the second 12 hours. Just work half the day. And he got up. And got in his jet and flew off. And I'll never forget as a young man that I started thinking, you know, the United States government says 40 hours is an average work week. And I think that's great. And if you want to work 40 hours and work what we consume as an average work week, well, why would you expect to be extraordinary when you're putting in average? And Kimmons Wilson basically awakened me to hard work alone won't get you successful, but you're not going to be successful without it. Speaking of that, there are so many scenes in Undefeated. I was watching it last week where we see you after some snafu or some hard conversation do something like this. (laughs) You put your hands, you put your hands over your face and you give a long exhale and you take a moment to collect yourself and that's on to the next thing. Yeah. And that moment that like that face is just the perfect face of my emotional capital is just depleted i'm bankrupt and everybody feels that way at some point in the day and i wonder when you're at that like that social low point or you're just i've given so much i'm just done 
what are you doing to replenish that? Maybe it's not in the moment. Maybe it's something you do when you get home. But where does that that come from? I hope I don't lose half your listeners on this because this, what I'm about to say 20 years ago, would not have been potentially inflammatory, but I'm praying. I am. I I, I, I ask God to just steady me. Um, I um, I pray a lot during the day when... Look, man, I, I'm in a business that is manufacturing and has 100 moving parts and 130 employees. My products are a commodity, and some of them can, can, can lose value before I'm able to even turn them into, into, into money. I do business in 42 different countries, each of which has a different banking system. I have to deal with companies like Maersk and the Union Pacific. And good luck if you're going to negotiate deal with the railroad or steamship lines because they dominate the world and they have the government in their back, back pocket. And I, I mean, that's my – and then on top of it, I coach. I'm a husband. I'm a father. And pretty much that rubbing my head thing that you see in the movie, I do that probably 20 times a day. <laughs> I just can't help it. And what I do is when I've had enough, I just – um I just ask for God to steady me. And and for some reason that calms me and allows me to kind of get clear thinking again and mm-hmm. go. And I'm not perfect. There's a lot of times that, that the little prayers don't help and or they're not answered and I lose my mind and act like an idiot. But more times than not, it's it's just a little bit of prayer. It's just a little bit of, you know, with your guidance, I can get through anything. So guide me and then mm-hmm. just. Look up, open your eyes, put a smile on your face and rock and roll again. What's the most important lesson you've learned on leadership and how are you identifying that in young people? Or or is it possible to? Is it always just a guess? So <laughs> um my first year at Manassas, we were three and three. Now, they'd won four games in ten years and had 17 kids on their team. So I think three and three is average, but you know, when you've won four games in 10 years, uh, three and three was okay. And, and the whole team was buying into all the football stuff. Um, but we were not just coaching football. We were coaching life lessons, character, commitment, integrity, those type things. And halfway through the season, we're three and three. And while the whole team's buying into the, the football stuff, Half the team was buying into the important stuff, doing their homework, mm-hmm. being respectful, mm-hmm. you know, trying to carry themselves with a little different attitude. And the other half the team, while still really respectful in the football and buying in, the minute football was over, they were engaged in the same destructive behavior that got them to four and 10 in the first place and metaphorically four and 10 in life, mm-hmm. you know? And so uh, I went to my guy. And I said, hey, man, what do I got to do to get that half the team to buy in like you're half the team? And he just kind of dismissively said, just keep doing what you're doing. And I'm like, no, man, real talk. He said, coach, I want to hurt your feelings. I said, you're not going to hurt my feelings. He said, all right, they're trying to figure out if you're a turkey person or not. And I said, what? And he said, coach, every Thanksgiving and Christmas, people roll into our neighborhoods and they give us gifts and hams and turkeys. And we take them because we ain't got none. But then they leave and we never see them again. And it makes you wonder if they're doing that because they really care about us. And they're doing that to make themselves feel good. Now, quick side note, if if you serve in a soup kitchen or 
or serve to the needy during Thanksgiving and Christmas. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful thing. This is not about diminishing that kind of work. What it is about is motive. And, and if, if you, if, if you're doing something for other people, because in the community that you return to or in your culture or your society or your fin group or your church or synagogue, mm-hmm. or whatever you belong to and the backslaps make you feel good mm-hmm. and you start doing that service, not specifically for the edification of another human being that's, that needs help, but because it elevates you among your peer group then you're motivated by the wrong thing. And people will take your turkey and they will take your ham and they will take your gift and they will say yes or no, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. But the minute you turn and walk out the door, they will start darts through your back because they know you're a fraud. Mm -hmm. So what's the most valuable lesson I learned at Manassas about leadership is the greatest leaders of our time give credit to the followers when they're doing well. They take blame and stand up in front of the followers when things aren't going right. And they are motivated by the position they have as a leadership position to see the followers succeed. Mm -hmm. And if your motive is that, you'll be successful. If your motive is not, more than likely, the followers are not going to act right. And the reason half the team at Manassas wasn't doing what I was asking to do is because anybody asked me about Manassas, I was all too ready to tell them everything I was doing, but I wasn't giving credit to the players and they saw through me. Mm-hmm. And I also think the greatest measure of the success of a leader is the actions of the followers. And if the actions of that half the team weren't what I wanted them to be, I didn't have enough sense back then to look within and see what I was doing wrong. And it took a 17-year-old kid from the hood to show me that I wasn't motivated properly and that I wasn't giving credit where we're supposed to do. And I wasn't looking at myself as I should because the actions of the followers were not representing proper leadership. And when I straightened all that thing out, that's when the magic started happening at Manassas. So the greatest lesson is don't be a turkey person. Exactly. And I was thinking about service before I was talking to you and the concept of service. And the thing that is thrown around today as a pejorative that's been, I think, on net so obviously destructive, but may contain a kernel of truth in what you just said about the turkey person, is this term of art called the white savior. Tell me what you feel about that term. Well, so a synonym with that would be paternalism, right? Right. So uh, I was at a. Look, man, I'm a football coach, right? I own a lumber company. I'm from Memphis. I'm a doofus, you know? I I, I, I was way too young to even understand so many of these cultural narratives. <laughs> and so I was at a, I was doing a Q&A after showing of Undefeated at the New York Film Festival. Did tons of Q&As, right? That, that's what you do when films come out. And mm-hmm. we were there. And the first question, the lady stood up in the back and she said, what would your response to be if somebody said that even as inspiring as the movie is, it hinges uh, or it tinges paternalism? And so I stood there uh, in awe of the question because I did even know what the word was. And I looked over at the directors 
And they answered a little bit. And once they answered, she then turned to me again and she said, okay, now that you know what it is, what do you think? And so there is a white savior syndrome in this world. And it is, you're right. It does have sense of the Turkey person story. The thing is, if you're white and you're doing service and you're working for a group of people or community that happen to be of color, I think everybody's always going to look at you in today's day and age and wonder if that's white knight stuff, white savior stuff, or are you being paternalistic? The answer to the question is, are you serving for them or are you serving to elevate yourself? And if you're serving for them, then you're on the right path, but that's not enough because here's the other thing. You, if you're going to serve a group of people, you need to ask a lot of questions. You need to shut up and listen. Because for a white guy with a business who has been richly blessed to go into an area of a bunch of kids of color who come from really desperately poverty areas, for me to talk to them about character, I have to phrase that and understand what I'm talking about. Because I can talk about character and demand that you show up on time and demand that you do these things and demand that you do those things. And those are tenets and fundamentals that are real and work and you need to teach. But what is the perspective of a kid? Why aren't you on time? Well, maybe it's because your mother works two jobs and you're having to watch your three-year-old sister until your mom gets home and then you sprint for two miles to get to practice and you're five minutes late. Well, does that show a lack of character because you're late or is that a world I don't even understand? And if you don't even ask enough questions to dive into the people you're looking to serve, to understand the reality, to then serve them, and you just start putting your tenets and characteristics and fundamentals and values on top of them without understanding who they are, then you risk being very paternalistic. You risk being the white savior because you don't know who you're serving. Mm -hmm. So the answer to the question is, Understand who you're serving, ask questions, listen, shut up, and and consume it, and then be motivated for them, not yourself. And if you do that, you can avoid the whole white savior paternalistic thing, but it is a dangerous trap and it is real. Mm. What lessons from your time as an educator do you find yourself doing or coming back to in your business? Everything. Um, I think all good leadership is servant leadership, and I think all good leadership start. There's an old saying, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, tell, tell them what you told them, them. Yeah. right? And there's a step in front of that. Teach them. Teach them what you want them to do. Then tell them what you want them to do. Then tell them what you told them. And and repeat. And 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 it's it, it really is, you know, Football is a game of learned repetition. You will be good at something if you do it a hundred times over and over again and continue to improve. Well, so is business. So is managing people. So is really everything successful. And so I absolutely believe in teaching. I also believe in, in explaining and, and putting things into context. 
I can tell a guy, I want you to loan a container of lumber this way going to Europe, period. And I can teach him to do it. And then I can tell him to do it. I can tell him what I told him, all of that. And he'll do it. But does he even know why he's doing it? I think also part of teaching is giving somebody, arm them with the perspective of not only what you want them to do, but why. And all. And most times when you actually take the time to do that and the people you're leading have perspective as to not only why they're doing it, but, but what the purposes are, you got a choice, you got a chance. And that all comes from being a teacher. Can you tell me about uh, Sam Quinn and what he taught you? Sam Quinn? Oh my gosh. You read the book. I don't know. What did you read against the grain? How do you know Sam Quinn? Um, first of all, Sam passed two weeks ago. Um, and uh his funeral was even including my own grandparents' funeral was the the toughest I've ever experienced. Mm-hmm. Um Sam Quinn was a Marine who came home from the Marines, got involved in all kinds of addiction issues. And when I met that man 23 years ago, he showed up for a $6 and 50 cent an hour job back then as a common laborer, broken living in lighthouse ministries, which is a halfway house with a ton of unpaid warrants and stuff. And his life was just messed up. And unfortunately his story is a microcosm of far too many people in our society today. And, um, What I found out was when you give a guy like Sam Quinn a reason, you give him hope, you give him an opportunity, and you teach him, and you allow him to mess up, but you pick him up and keep keep allowing him, that um, the redemptive spirit of humanity is an awe-inspiring thing to watch. And Sam, I'm not going to say he... You know, so many people, oh, this person rebuilt my my belief in humanity. I've always had a belief in humanity, but he sure strengthened it because 20 years later, he's a manager at my business, owned his own home, had two paid for cars, financed and paid them off early, married his wife, adopted those three children with a real live marriage certificate and lived a life that would suggest that this is a guy who's been on a perfect path his whole life. And he turned it around because he had an opportunity to turn around. And, and he, he is the embodiment of the old saying, it's not, doesn't matter where you start. It matters where you finish. And what he taught me was the, um, the human spirit given a level playing field and an opportunity can overcome almost anything mm-hmm. about Six months into business, we were operating a bunch of old, broke down, crappy machinery that I drug out from behind old furniture plants. This was a seventeen thousand dollars business startup plan from the book. Oh yeah, this is the the plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to Virginia, North Carolina, and I'm gonna drag a bunch of old, broke up stuff that doesn't work. Literally hooking chains to it, dragging it out of the weeds, throwing on a sixteen foot trailer, and bringing it back here and going, "Okay, how I'm gonna make this thing work?" Well, we did. And six months in, the tilt hoist, and the tilt hoist is a piece of machinery that is at the front of the production lines. Without it, you can't get lumber to your machines. And if you can't get lumber to machines and you can't grade it and you can't surface it, you can't sell it. And when you have no capital and very little cash flow, every day matters, right? 
And so on a Friday, we, our shift ends at 3.30. At like 2.15, our tilt hoist completely broke. The, the gearbox, the motor seized. The chain gripped the shaft, twisted the shaft, which actually bent two of the arms. And when I say it destroyed it, it destroyed it. And that is a lot of work. The, 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 the 35 horsepower motor and gearbox itself is an $8,000 thing that makes everything go. Fortunately, I had a spare one that had to be rebuilt. Then we had to get a shaft cut, put keyways in it. Then we had to straighten out everything and then reinstall it. It literally is 20 hours of work. And this happened at Friday. And by Monday morning, I had to be running. So me and my ops manager, my maintenance manager called our wives and said, bring us food. And we saw the sunrise three times before we ever went home. And we got it finished at 630 on Monday morning for shift to start. But I looked up as we started this and Sam was walking in. Our shift ends at 330. He was walking in at 530. He'd clearly gone home, changed clothes, and he had a had a had a cooler with him. And I said, Sam, what are you doing? He said, I'm here to help you with it. I said, Sam, I can't afford I can't, I can't afford to pay you any extra hours. And I sure can't afford to pay you time and a half. He said, Bill, you've shown me this is my company, too. You're not paying me. I'm here to help. And that man stood with us that entire weekend. And, and guys, you, I'm talking about grease, heat, sweat, misery, uh, shavings flying, torches, welding, gritty, dirty, crappy work where your, your thumbs and your fingers are raw. And he's right there with us the whole time. And then at, 5.30, shift starts at 7, he goes into the washroom, washes up, and then pulls lumber for eight more hours before he goes home on Monday night and didn't ask for a dime. Uh, all because he had an opportunity to be part of something that was his company, and he wanted to do all he could to help it be successful because he saw the future of his life in this company, and he was willing to give to it. and um. I, you know, you just, you just don't run across people like that much. And it's no wonder why a guy like him straightened his life out and became the man he was. Because again, that the fortitude and the strength and the humanity inside that guy was just amazing. And the world's a smaller place without him in it. Hmm. You're in somewhat of the risk business, the risk management business <laughs> with commodities. Well, that's true. And you've taken a lot of big risks when I think of the things that you've done starting this, you had a family when you started this. Our kids were two, three, four, and five. And there was no sure bet of success with that, for example. How are you thinking about risk and reward when you're making decisions like that? To give that perspective, I was making $17,000 a year as a football coach and teacher when my wife married me. No insurance. And, um, I left coaching as a profession and teaching as a profession, continued to do it as a non-faculty certified coach, but I did it out of necessity. I had to feed all that formula is expensive and we had four of them. And so, you know, I bounced around and like you said, sold fleets of cars and ended up in the lumber business at 31 years old. I'd become the vice president of sales of a company. Now, I'd never had more than three $100 bills in my pocket ever in my life. And at 31 years old, we had just bought a 4,000 square foot house 
We had these four beautiful children going to good schools. Lisa had an ice car, I had an ice car, and I was making six figures. I never, I never, when I was in school, it was the rich kids whose parents lived like I was living in 31. I never even saw myself ever being able to live like that. And I'd, in my mind, I'd, I'd reached it. I'd arrived. And, you know, you protect that when you get to that point, especially at 31 years old. And then this thing came over me that I thought, you know, I can do this. And the man who owned the business was never going to give me any ownership. And, and I, I kept talking about it. And Lisa looked at me at the table and she said, we have four healthy, beautiful children and I'm with you. And she said, we were broke when I married you. We've been broke before and we can be happy broke again. The Lord's blessed us with these kids. The Lord's blessed us what we have. I believe in you. If this is something you want to do, go for it. And if we lose it all, we'll start over another way. I've been broke before. We can be broke again. I didn't manage risk. I just went to work. What I was able to do, however, is not be afraid of the risk or failure because I had a partner in my life that said, it's okay. I'm going to love you all the same if you do fail. And so um, I don't really think I did a good job managing risk. What I did a good job was marrying the right person to support me through the risk. And f- and fear was eliminated from that equation, which yeah. is also what you're doing as a leader. Of the company, no, it's right? true. Yeah. Fear of failure is the biggest obstacle to success. If you're, if you have fear of failure and it prohibits you from even trying, well, then the fear of failure, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, right? Well, if you have fear of failure and the fear of the failure prohibits you from trying, then your fear prohibits you from advancing, right? And so, um, yeah, it was not managing risk as much as it was, you know, I've got these four kids I'm responsible for. I got this wife. I got this pretty house I just built. I've reached a station in life where people see me as a guy who's successful, which is a huge fear. You know, I mean, am I going to lose my friends? Are people going to think I'm an idiot and a pariah if I go after this and don't make it? But it was Lisa. It was Lisa. It was Lisa who said, I'm going to love you all the same, whether you have money or not. These kids are going to cherish you, whether you have money or not. And you're going to be a success as a father and a husband, whether you have money or not. Go do it. Tell me about an army of normal folks. What inspired the project and what have you learned so far? Hmm. Well, Alex inspired the project. Alex, the producer. Ugh, such a pain in the neck. Shout out to Alex Cortez. That's terrible. Yeah. But anyway, we'll. That's for another story. Um, I did an interview with Alex, and I, I I truly believe that I genuinely I, I don't want to do soapbox here, but I genuinely believe that DC is incenting incented by power and money to divide us. I just believe it. I, I why would you spend millions of dollars for a hundred and thirty thousand dollar your job? If it wasn't about the power and then when you get the power, you're going one way or the other and you're trying to get the people that voted for you and donated to you to follow you down one hole or another to hold on to your power. So I think I think our our government is doing a, a woeful job of uniting our country, despite 
the BS rhetoric. I mean, they'll say, yes, we need to be united. We need to unite. And then they do things that don't, it's just, it's good. And then I think our social media and our national media, um, I mean, I think it's obvious that, I mean, let's call it for what it is. CNN is incented to be center left and they speak and advertise and narrate to center left people. Huffington Post to the far left, mm-hmm. Fox News to the right, and then you can go farther right with 1945 or whatever it's called, or maybe even Newsmax. And I mean, their audiences provide them with their power and their money. And so their job is to do whatever they can to keep their audiences with their narratives. Fine. It's a big boy game. It's a big boy sport. But we need to wake up and realize that the people we're putting all of our faith and trust in to get both our governance from and our information from are incented by power and money to divide us. We've got to get our arms around that. And if we're going to fix it, and what I mean by it, whatever it is in culture that's bothering you, crime, education, uh, whatever the issue is, um, I just think it's going to take us to ignore that narrative and counter the narrative from the power class with the media, with movies, social media, and politics, and just say, I don't care if you worship differently than me or vote differently than me or look differently than me. If you share the same care and concern for culture, society, and humanity as I do, we can find common ground. And if we could gather around that one concept, we could literally create an army of just normal folks who ignore the loud noise from our politics and the narrative from our our, our national media and say, you know what, we can convalesce around our humanity and doing what's best for our culture and our society and the most disadvantaged among us. So, um, you know, I said something along those lines to Alex when he interviewed me one day and he came back and he said, I I really believe what you're saying. There's a place for it in our society. It's an army of normal folks. We'll start a podcast and hopefully create a movement and get people to quote, join the army and uh and maybe we can change hearts and minds and 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 build a community of people who regardless of who they are that why they think how they vote how they worship we can at least gather around this one guiding principle that says we're human beings we need to serve each other and let's celebrate those who are celebrating humanity and serving one another regardless of who they are, where they come from, because that's one thing we can all gather around. Mm -hmm. So I do think it's the one thing that can bring us back together. That was the great and powerful Bill Courtney. You can listen to an army of normal folks wherever you get your podcasts. There's fantastic interviews that Bill does with some very inspiring people. Bill Courtney, thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks so much for having me. 